Once again, good morning. I'm Dion. It's good to be together today as we're in this uh, this series, which uh, again, I love the format, where you get to fill in the second half of the message with your own questions. So if you have a question on today's topic, rich versus poor, whose side is God on? uh, You can text it. I think it's going to be up here, or maybe it's just up there. 636-686-0140. Guess I was wrong about that, um, which won't be the first time I'm wrong about something, I assure you. Um, but let me, uh, let me just tell you, as you're getting your phone ready to text in some questions, uh, let me tell you what I was doing last weekend. Last weekend, I had a weekend off, so I wasn't here, um, and I went with my family, along with another family, some good friends of ours, down to Table Rock Lake. How many of you are Table Rock fans? Great, there's like four of you. Um, I, from, from the traffic down there, I thought maybe a few more of you would have gone. But uh, Table Rock Lake, I think it's a beautiful place. We had great weather, just kind of a little getaway after the craziness of Easter. We spent two days down there, uh, and it was, it was really exceptional. Except for one small thing. Uh, frankly speaking, when I'm down at the lake, and maybe you can relate with this, I have a hard time not getting a little swept up. In, in just my thinking. I'll explain it this way. You know, I'm down there and I'm looking at the beauty of everything and I'm looking at, you know, nice homes and, and boats and slips and immediately I get all swept up in my mind with questions like, what would it be like to have a place like this on the lake where my family could come every weekend? You know, what would it be like to have a house like that to, to retreat from our other house? And what would it be like to have a, have a boat in the lake that you could just get in? And what would it be like to be able to go fishing? And what, what would that be like? What would that be like if I had a job where I actually could, could go away on weekends because I didn't have to work? What would that be like? You know, I start getting swept up with these questions. And, and, uh, and then on the way home, because I'm kind of in this, this you know, weird state of mind, I'm, I'm wearing out my wife Jocelyn with all of these income-producing schemes. Just like, how can we make more money? How can we get a lake house? And, and she's just shaking her head because she knows I don't really have the margin in my life, nor do I have the motivation to do those things. And so she just kind of waits me out. And eventually I get home, and, and whatever it is about that lake air, that enchanting lake air, like, you know, the four-hour drive back home, the spell had worn off, and I was back to my senses. And I started to remember, really, the, the actual state of the world. You know, while I'm sitting there thinking, oh, poor me, I don't have a lake house— I'm thinking about people for whom a trip to the lake, even a two-day trip to the lake, would, would be a trip of, the life, of a lifetime. You know, they would dream about that. They've never done anything like that before. Or I think about people for whom traveling four hours in a car just isn't an option because they don't have cars. They don't have that kind of, kind of travel. Or even if they did, maybe they're living in a place where that kind of travel isn't safe, where there are warlords and thugs all through the area, and and you just don't travel that far away from home. I started thinking about them. I started thinking about people who are sitting in refugee camps, people who have had to leave their homes, and they don't know where they're going yet, but but they're just kind of stuck in no man's land. They're stuck in limbo. I started thinking about a kid that I read about in our Stronghold Cambodia newsletter. Now, if you don't know Stronghold Cambodia, Stronghold Cambodia is a ministry that we here began at St. John, and we're currently supporting it. Um, It's a ministry to 75 kids in Cambodia. Um, what Stronghold does is, is really three things. We feed them one solid meal a day because that's hard to come by in Cambodia, a well-rounded nutritious meal. Um, we supplement their education. So in Cambodia, public school is a half day. I notice some of you who are in school, that sounds awesome, but it's not, I assure you. Uh, it's really a poor education. There could be 60 kids in a room, um, so they don't get much out of their education. So Stronghold Cambodia supplements that education. It really gives them an education, and uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And then the third thing it does is it gives these kids hope. It teaches them about a God who loves them. 
And not only does, does, uh, do they get taught about that, not only do they learn about Jesus, but they get to experience his love through the staff that we have there. So 75 kids, you know, every day in Stronghold Cambodia, this is something we started. You support this. Give yourself a hand for that. It's incredible, isn't it? It really is. Um, so uh, I, I was reading the newsletter not too long ago, and this story came into my, my mind while I was, you know, whining about not having to, being able to live at the lake, um, of this kid, Sochit. Uh, so this is Sochit, good-looking kid. Um, he's in sixth grade. It's his second year at Stronghold. And um, Sochit actually lives in, in the slums that are not too far from Stronghold. And you can see here, it's, it's a literal slum. You know, you just find whatever materials you have, you can find, and you make a house out of it. So a piece of metal, a, a piece of lumber, a, a metal pole, anything you can find, you do with that. And uh, Sochit has two older brothers, but his older brothers weren't able to continue in school because his parents are just destitute. They don't have any money. Um, his parents are both illiterate. His dad works as a charcoal burner, which means that he takes wood that he can find and, uh, and they, they kind of cook it up into pieces of coal that later become fuel that he can sell. That's what his dad does for a living. Um, his mom is a street vendor. She tries to sell sweets out on the street to, uh, to people who are willing to buy them. And, um, and this is Sochi's life. Oh, by the way, on the weekends, you know, his parents aren't running him around to, you know, soccer tournaments or anything. On the weekends, he carries firewood for people and he carries water for people so that he can make enough money to buy his school uniforms, not for Stronghold, but for public school. They require uniforms, but they don't provide them. You have to pay for them. So he works to provide his own uniforms and the materials for his public school education, uh, which isn't even that great of an education. So that's his life. I start thinking about that, and, I, and then I think about my kids. You know, my three kids, there's a picture we took at Easter out in the lobby, and uh, I've got great kids. They're just truly, uh, man, just awesome kids. Um, got the love of God in their heart, and I'm so blessed by them. But I start thinking about how different their life is. So here we are, we live in this, this, uh, this country with great public education, this area of the country with great public education. But my kids actually go to St. John's School. You know, think about what a luxury that is. And, and just put in a word for St. John's School, not only are my kids getting an education that is top-notch, but what I love that my kids are getting in, in, uh, in our school here at St. John is, is they're, they're getting a sense of strength of character. See, they know who they are. And they are not just their talents or their abilities. They know that they are sons and daughters of God. And I can see, you know, my daughter Ellie, she's going to be 13 this week. I can see how that makes a difference in her as a 13-year-old, all the insecurities of middle school, how, how that gives her a, a just a solidness to her being. I'm so grateful for this school. And I think my kids, they get to come here to this place every day. And they get a, just a top-notch education. They get all the other things that, uh, that St. John provides. And they don't have to think about any of that. And uh, we provide their uniforms, and they don't have to think about where their next meal is coming from, and they really don't have to think about much in life. That's not to say they have an easy life, right? Everyone's got their own stuff to carry, and they've got responsibilities. But, but I was thinking about just the difference. How, how can two sets of kids, you know, so cheating his brothers and my kids, how can their life be so different? How can the disparity be so great? I mean, do you ever wonder about that yourself? When you look at rich and poor, you look at privileged or impoverished, you look at those who are sitting on top of the world and those who are oppressed. Do you ever look at those disparities and you, disparities and you wonder, why, God? Why does it have to be like this? Why don't you do something about this? 
See, I bet that you do. I, I bet there are moments in life where you do. And I bet that in those moments, you, like me, also try to think of answers, right? Because who wants an unresolved question? And so I think a lot of times as we look at the disparities in the world that exist, economic or otherwise, we start to try to answer the question of, of why them and not me or why me and not them. And we come up with these answers and, and a lot of them aren't, aren't very good answers. I'd, I'd call them faulty conclusions. The first is this, the prosperous are being rewarded for their faithfulness. I mean, do you ever think this? Like, well, maybe the reason that we're so prosperous is because we work hard. As if Sochit and his parents aren't working hard. Or we take it from a faith angle, because most of us in this room probably are people of faith. Uh, not all of us, I know, but, but most of us. And, and so we'd say, maybe the prosperous are being rewarded because they're in a right relationship with God. They're trusting God. And so as a result of their faithfulness, God is blessing them which may be true in some cases, but I think you also have to admit that there are way too many prosperous people in the world who are not faithful in their relationship with God, and there are also lots of faithful people who aren't prosperous. So so that doesn't explain it. Sometimes we go the opposite way. We go, you know, 180 degrees from that, and we say, well, faithfulness and prosperity have nothing to do with each other. God doesn't give anyone prosperity for faithfulness, which may sound nice until you actually read the Bible, (laughs) And then you discover that in the Old Testament, guys like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, King David, King Solomon, all of these people are blessed by God with material resources because of their faithfulness, the Bible says. Uh, Proverbs even says, the blessings of the Lord, or the blessing of the Lord, rather, brings wealth without painful toil for it. This implication that, hey, faithful people who trust in God, he can bless them with wealth without, without working hard for it. So at least some of the time we know that prosperity can be a blessing from God. It's not true that they have nothing to do with each other. So so then maybe you just get confused and you say, hey, it's all random. There's no purpose to any of it. I can't explain it. It just is what it is. And while part of that might be truthful, and, and in fact, the disparities that exist in our world, they're not really God's fault. Sure, God blesses us incongruently, and yet the the truth is that most of the disparities, the really deep disparities that exist in our world, those are man-made. Those are sin-made. They're made as a result of our sinful nature, our broken creation. But but the truth is, even though that's not God's fault, the truth is God has a purpose for the disparities that exist. If you ever sit around and wonder, why doesn't God just, you know, speak a word and make all things fair and get rid of all the disparities, it's because God has a purpose in allowing the disparities to keep going. Today I'm going to share with you actually two purposes that are derived from uh, different sections of Scripture. Um, The first one comes from John chapter 9. It's a miracle account out of Jesus' life. And from this, we get to see one of the purposes for God's toleration of disparities. Pretty powerful stuff. So let's look. John chapter 9. It says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man who had been born blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples do what we often do. They see a disparity. This guy was born blind. They were born seeing. Well, why is that? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. So so is it that we did something right and we were blessed with sight? Or did this guy do something wrong and he was cursed with blindness. See, we may not do it this crassly, but we do this all the time, don't we? When we see disparities that exist, whether they're, whether they're you know, physical abilities, disabilities, whether they're financial 
any other kind of disadvantage, we look at that, and, and in the back of our mind, our wheels start turning, and we start to think, I wonder what they did to end up there. The disciples ask an honest question. Who is it, Rabbi? His parents who sinned, or, or was it him who sinned, he who sinned? Someone must have done something wrong, because this, this isn't normal. This just doesn't happen, right? And look at Jesus' answer. He says, neither. <laughs> you're, you're looking for someone to blame. Jesus says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is saying, the time is now. Let's get busy. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So, so they're all caught up on, on trying to figure this out. Like, so what did they do wrong? What did this guy do wrong to get born blind? And Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He just says, no, no, no. It's not about blame. It's not about fault finding. He said, instead, this is an opportunity to display the works of God. And then he says, or he shows us exactly what he means. After saying these things, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Kind of gross, huh? Uh, you get, this, you get this, uh, this hearkening back, though, to creation where God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him. And, and it's like Jesus is going to recreate this man. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which is a word that means sent. And remember Jesus just said, while it is day, I must do the works of him who sent me. And, and so this pool is also called sent. So there's, there's a connection here. So the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. Man, this is a great narrative. If you want to read the rest of it when you go home, John chapter 9. Uh, if you like Monty Python, it gets to this kind of comedic misunderstanding moment, even um, as the, the Pharisees and other people interrogate this man about how he was healed because they just can't believe it. But from this, do, do you see? Do you see one of the purposes for God's um, tolerance of ongoing disparities? It is to display the works of God. Here you have this man who has a, a problem. And, you know, I guess God could have just made him be born some other way. But, but here Jesus says there's an opportunity to show the world, to show everyone what the Father in heaven is like. To show everyone what Jesus is like. That he is a powerful, miracle-working God, yes, but that he's also a good God who cares about our circumstances. It's an opportunity to display the works of God. See, what if when we looked at disparities that existed in the world, instead of getting frustrated or angry, instead of feeling, you know, embittered or entitled or whatever else we might feel, arrogant, boastful, what if we looked at those, those disparities as opportunities to display the works of God? The Old Testament prophecy said about the Messiah that he would be one who would come, and, and you, you know what it said he would do? He would, he would help the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk, and he would cleanse lepers, and he would raise the dead, and he would preach the good news to the poor. See, see, God doesn't just speak a word and wipe out all disparities, because those disparities are an opportunity real time for us in an ongoing way to demonstrate the works of God, to tell the world about the, the Father in heaven who loves us, who has sent us, right, to live the six in the world, to heal, to bind up, to restore as best as we are able. See, instead of, instead of looking at disparities as, as a problem, what if we saw them as opportunities? They are our chance to show the world what our God is like. Get this, most world religions, I think you know this, 
When they look at someone who's suffering, they have a reason for it. And the reason is usually that person did something to offend God. That's not what the Christian God says. That's not what the Father in heaven says. That's not what Jesus says. He says and said, these are opportunities to display the works of God, to show the world what he's like and what we are like as his followers. What if we saw disparities in the same way? So that's the first purpose for disparities. The second one um, comes from Paul, not from Jesus, but from Paul. And uh, the scripture we're going to look at here is actually a letter, a fundraising letter. So the next time you get a letter from me talking about giving, you can't get mad. It's biblical, okay? Paul did it, um, and he wrote a letter to actually some wealthy people in Corinth. It's a city in Greece. And uh, they, they were very wealthy, some Christians there. And he was asking them to willingly give an offering to help some impoverished Christians back in uh, the Holy Land in, in Jerusalem and around because they were under persecution there. And so he's asking them to support their brothers and sisters to do something about this, uh, this disparity. And I want you to see what he says about it. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, right? I mean, because this is how we think about giving so often. <laughs> we think that someone is trying to take something from us. So you get a letter from me and it's like, hey, you know, support the work of God here. And you're like, oh, all the church they want is my money. They want to take from me. And give it to someone else. So now I'm hurting. And, and we, you know, think us versus them. And, and Paul goes, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not the point here. The point is not that, 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 that we might relieve others so you're hard-pressed. Instead, he says, God's got a bigger plan for this. The plan is that there might be equality. Hold on to that. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. You know, you, you rich Corinthians who are living in prosperity, your plenty can supply what these Jerusalem Christians who are living in great need, you can take care of them. So that, though, so that, in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So you get it from Paul? The second purpose of the ongoing disparities is to encourage equality. Now, I know some of you right away are like, oh, equality. He's going to talk about a $15 minimum wage and wealth redistribution. Will you just relax? I'm not here to talk about politics. I could actually hear the blood pressure get louder in the room just a moment ago when I said that word. See, that's not the kind of equality that Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about public policy. That's for other people to figure out. And, uh, and it's not the kind of equality where, you know, hey, I'll pick up your lunch this week, you get mine next week, and then we're even, we're equal. See, Paul's talking about a deeper kind of equality. You could look at this and say, Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, give the Jerusalem Christians your money now so that later on when you're hurting, they can help you out. See, that's kind of our worldly idea of, of equality. It's always tit for tat in the same way. But see, I think Paul is talking about a deeper kind of equality. He's actually talking about a kind of giving where the giver receives something back of value because of her act of giving. And where the receiver give something back of value just in her act of receiving. See, Paul described, hey, your plenty can supply their need and their plenty at a later time can supply your need, but I don't think he was talking about the same kind of plenty or the same needs. Do you see? See, I, I think we'd be helped just hugely if we'd stop thinking of poverty only in terms of economic poverty. But that's what we do, Right? We think of poverty only in economic terms, which poverty, economic poverty, is very serious. I mean, I've been to homes of people in Cambodia and in other places where, where they are watching a child die from a preventable disease. That's serious if that's you. That's nothing to laugh at. 
So economic poverty is serious, but we've got to stop thinking about it only in terms, poverty only in terms of the economic type. After all, the Bible describes spiritual poverty. And in my life, I've observed a poverty of purpose, a poverty of meaning, a poverty of relationship, a poverty of the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible describes the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know that in your life and in other people's lives, there's often a poverty of those things. And you see, this is the reason that, uh, that I, think, I think Paul's words are hard for us to understand is that he's not talking to the Corinthian believers as if they're the haves and the, and the believers in Jerusalem who are the have-nots. The truth is they're both haves and have-nots. Right? There are things that we have, all of us, and there are things that we don't have. We are people who have plenty and we are people who are in need all at the same time. We just have to stop thinking in terms of only economics when we talk about poverty. This is the reason that there are Christians in other countries who are looking at the American church and, and they see our wealth and they see our influence, but they're praying for us because they recognize that there is a poverty in the American church that's not economic. But it's a poverty of dependence. It's a, it's a poverty of, uh, of, of independence, I should say. It's a poverty of, of self-reliance, of saying, you know, we don't need anything. It's a poverty of being prayerful. It's a poverty of the fruit of the Spirit. And they're not doing that to be accusing. They're doing that because they love us. They're praying for us that we might discover the things that will actually make our lives fuller. See, in, in Paul's words, there's something really wise going on here. He's talking about equality, or I know some of us don't like this word, and so we talk about it in a, in a different way. I think this is a truer way. God's purpose is to encourage reciprocity. This is a word that uh, Jen Schultz, our missions director, has brought to us, and I think it's a great word. Um, when we hired her, she had this phrase, and I just thought, you get it. She said, my job, my job as a missions director in a church is to connect people who need something to live for with people who need something just to live. And in that, there's this amazing reciprocity. See, I think what Paul is talking about is, is hey, when, when you give out of what is plentiful in your life to someone who is in need, they have a way of being able to give back to you to the poverty that you have in your life that you might not even recognize. And in so doing, we all end up a little richer, a little more whole. But the beautiful thing about it is, is that it requires us to depend on each other to get there. See, if God just raised every valley and lowered every mountain, then we would all be self-reliant, able to take care of ourselves, and we would be miserable. We, we would experience a poverty of isolation that would not be healthy for any of us. God in his wisdom allows these disparities to go on so that we might be encouraged, not mandated, but encouraged in this act of reciprocity, of, of giving and then being open to receive, even from people who we look at and say, they don't have anything to give me. I think again, they do, they do. So to recap these two purposes, and we'll get to your questions. God's purpose is for the disparities to display the works of God so that we might be the church and we might show whose we are and what our God is like to encourage reciprocity. I just keep thinking about this. When we do this right, when we do this right, what, what happens is, is that what I have so much of can enrich the life of so cheat. It can make a monumental, monumental difference in, in his family, that kid in Cambodia. But, but if we do this right, then what he has and what his family has can make a monumental difference in mind. And the end game is that we are all richer. So I'll take your questions now. Again, 636-686-0142.
zero. Let's see if we've got one already. Uh, How come it seems like the less people have, the more selfless they are? (laughs) Um, I I respect that that's your uh, perspective. I have seen that also not be true, right? I've seen people who um, have very little and they hold on to it with all of their might. Um, but if, if this is true, and I, I, I'm not going to say that it is or isn't, but uh, I think when this is true, that there are people who have very little and they're selfless, I think some of that is they're, they're selfless with the things that they've realized maybe don't matter as much to them as some of us would think. So uh, you can see someone who doesn't have very much you know, materially, and they seem very generous with that. Well, maybe that's just because they've realized that there are other things in life that fill them more than material things. I think the great danger or the great like, just confusing thing for us here in the West in this part of the world in a community like this is that we really believe that the thing, will make, the thing that will make our life the richest are earthly riches. And uh, you know, that's the, the message our government tells us. Right? Economic growth, it's, it's got to happen. That's how we get better as a society. And uh, that's what commercials tell us and that's what movie stars tell us. And so we kind of live our lives thinking like, hey, hey, we, in order to have a fuller life, in order to have a richer life, we need more riches, more, more material possessions. But, but the truth is, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, studies have shown this, that up to a certain level, our happiness does increase. You know, again, when you can't feed your kids, when you can't get medicine for them when they're sick, that's, that's a terrible life. But after you get past a certain point and your basic needs are met, then the economic growth of your country, the, the, the household income that you have, it doesn't make your life any fuller. And yet we in this part of the world, we actually believe that it will. And we do that. Here's the point. We do that to the detriment of all the other riches that God wants to give us that will actually fill us. And so we become very financially rich, very materially rich, but we experience poverty in other ways. We're not even paying attention to those other ways. And we wonder why we have everything and yet we still feel so empty. So I think some of the reason that you can look at people who have less and they're very selfless with their material possessions is because they've discovered those other things in life that fill them up. And I I reckon if you ask them to get rid of all those things, they might be a little more guarded or, or maybe they've just discovered the principle of reciprocity. I don't know. Great question though. How can we help others without giving the impression that we have an ulterior motive, yet still have them know we are motivated by Christ? It's a great question, um, you know, especially with, with this idea, even as I was mentioning Stronghold before, I know that some of you are like, uh, and some people would criticize what we do there because they think it's like an ulterior motive thing. We're just trying to teach them about Christ and we dangle you know, food over their heads or education over their heads. Which, is, which isn't true for us at all, of course. We believe that a whole life is found in being well-fed and being well-educated and being well-connected to Jesus Christ and, and his church. Like, we believe those things come together. Um, and so that's why we do what we do. But I know that there are a lot of people in the world who judge our motives and, and kind of think that we're doing um, some shady stuff. I, I think the way, that, the way that you can do this is by expressing that you have a genuine concern for a whole person. So I think sometimes in the church, maybe what we've done to give people this impression is we, we have acted like, you know, someone's, someone's faith is the only thing that really matters. And I talked about this on Easter, that we are not just spirits, but we are a created body. And God cares about our whole being. Um, and so maybe one of the ways that you can help give people the impression that we don't have an ulterior motive is to show genuine care for all of them, their entire well-being. I, I think the reason this perception is out there is because for some Christians it's true. They only care about, you know, counting 
the number of people who they, you know, salvations or however it might be termed. Um, but but I, think, I think our calling is to care for whole people. And when you care for people, when you really love someone, when it's sincere, they will know it. It may take some time, but if you care about them, you're willing to give them the time, right? To help them see it. So that, that's what I'd say is, is care for the whole person. Be patient and show them that. And let this come as a result of, of your care. Great question. Why does God love all people equally, even though some people are poor in their faith of him? This is another great question. Man, if there's any question I wrestle with a lot, this, it's this question. You know, why was I, why was I, and I wasn't raised actually in a household where, where faith was a thing, um, but, but God brought my parents to faith who then taught me about the faith. And I think, yeah, if I'm living, if I'm living in Cambodia, um, a country that's 96% Buddhist, what are my chances of ever hearing about the love of God? By the way, the haunting nature of that question is what drives me to do what I do. Because I think, yeah, well, well I do know. This is something I've been blessed with. This is, this is a way I am rich. That I am rich in my relationship with God. I know the love of God. And so I am compelled to do the works of God who sent me. I'm compelled to share the world, uh, share this wealth that I have with uh, other people in the world. So that's one of the ways that I've answered this. I've said, that's not fair to me. That's not right. I've got something that other people don't. My response is to share what I'm rich in uh, with, with those who don't have it. And that's what I'd encourage you to do too. I, I think, again, if, if you look at God's, um, you know, just, just tolerance of, of the way the world is, why he doesn't step in and do greater degree of intervention. I think part of the reason is because he means us to be players in this, guys. Like he means for us to have a role. We need to, for our own sakes, have a role in God's work. God doesn't need us to be his hands and feet. We need to be God's hands and feet for our own wholeness. And so when we look at the world and we say, God, why did you do this? And meanwhile, we know God and we've got the resources to tell people about God and we can travel on a mission trip or we can support missions and we don't, then, then I think we're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, why does, why does God love all people even though some are poor in faith? It's why am I still sitting here not doing anything about this? Now, I know I'm, I'm preaching a little bit, but I mean, this, this is where it comes down. I mean, this, this is where the rubber meets the road for me. That if I'm bothered by something in the world and I've got the resources, I've got the knowledge, I've got, I've got the riches to fix it and I'm not doing anything, that becomes my problem. That's not God's problem. And God has loved, loves me enough and he's wooing me and he's, he's maybe speaking to you right now through me and you hate it. But this is God loving you to say, hey, there's more for the world through you and there's more for you when you step out and begin living your life this way. As you let go, as you give you will receive and your life will become richer too. The great, mystery, the great lie here is that we'll become deprived if we, if we, uh, if we pour ourselves out for the good of others. The, the reality is we will become richer. Tough question. Sorry if you're mad at me for the answer. Uh, God loves a cheerful giver, but how do I counteract my feelings of cynicism when I presume the money I give to a panhandler will be used for impure goods? This is a... Man, this is a really tough question. And again, I say it's tough because I've, I've had these exact same feelings, right? Someone's standing there with a sign. I'm like, uh-huh. Now, I pride myself on skepticism or cynicism. And so I'm just like, I, I know what you're doing. Um, and so I would say this, that there, there are wise ways to give. Um, as a church, we spend a lot of time investigating partners who are helping people in ways that are helpful. There are ways to help people that actually hurt them. Um, and so for me, rather than trying to discern every moment, that's why I am very, I try to be generous with those partners that I know are doing good work. 
Um, but I, I think, in just this sum I'm working on in my own heart, you know, I think if, if I give this to someone and they choose to use a gift that I give them in a way that's, that's impure or not helpful, um, is, is, that, is that on me? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, but, but I think there's also something in me that says, or is this really just about me not wanting to part with my stuff? And so in those moments of cynicism, I'm saying, is this really about the person and me wanting to do something for their well-being? Or is this actually about me? Is this, is this about me being stingy? Is this me, about me saying, I want to keep my five bucks, I don't want to give my money to you, I'd spend it on something else? Because uh, if it's about me, I'm going to give it away and I'm, I'm going to let them deal with you know, whatever they're going to do because I need to give it. Um, but if it's about them, then, then maybe I look for a healthier channel to give it through. And again, I'm telling you, we've got some, uh, we've got some great partners that we can connect you with if you want to just even give directly. That's why we do a, an impact offering, a missions offering. Um, we're supporting people who really know how to help in, uh, in meaningful ways. Do you have another question or is that it? They shut me down. I was just getting started. So, hey, it's not my fault. It's on the people in the back. Um, hey, as you, as you think about this in... And I hope you do. Here's what I challenge you to do today as you uh, drive home. Maybe you came with some people and, and uh, you, can, you can have this discussion on the way home. Or maybe you come here um, on your own and, and maybe today, even before you leave, you can text a friend and just say, hey, I, w- I want to talk to you. I want to have a discussion with you. And here's what I would like you to discuss. I'd like you to begin to look into your life and to say, in what ways are we poor? I think, I think maybe we do enough to try to help you understand in what ways you're rich. And other articles out there and blogs out there. But, but maybe pay attention to in what ways are we poor beyond materially? Is, the, is there a, a relational poverty in our lives? Is there a poverty of meaning or purpose? Is there a poverty of love, of joy, of peace, of you know, any of the other fruit of the Spirit? In what way am I, in what way are we impoverished? And uh, I just begin to wrestle with that question. Ask God to help you understand that question. Because I think, I think the, the poverty that you have in your life, it, it, it's a need, it's a sign that's driving you to action. Right? When you have a need, when you're hungry, it's, it's saying you, you need to eat. And too often, I think we ignore those other sources of poverty in our life where we've got a need that's crying out. We ignore them. Instead, we just chase after more money or possessions because we think that's going to fill those things. But I think by getting in touch with those poverty things, we, 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 can, we can let then God drive us to action that will actually be fulfilling and meaningful. We can discover this reciprocity thing. We can say, okay, if I'm, if I'm impoverished in this way, but I'm wealthy in this way, how can God bring this together? And I think simply by asking the question, God can reveal a lot to you. So that's my challenge for you. And in fact, uh, let, me, let me pray for us in that way right now. Father in heaven, we thank you for all the ways in which you have made us rich. In a, a, a relationship with you foremost, God, that we are privileged to know you. We do not take that lightly, Father. We thank you for it so much. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for all the other blessings that you give us in life. Uh, you know, every day I wake up and, and when there's peace on our soil, increasingly I'm giving you thanks for a peaceful nation. I'm, I'm thankful for the relationships, the health, the, the prosperity, the, the things. God, all of that stuff is a gift from you. And we thank you for it. Father, today though, I, I pray that you would help turn our attention toward our poverty. The places where our spirits are crying out where our lives are still empty. Father, speak to us about those things so that we don't keep ignoring those things and instead so that we give our ear to those things and 
and we act in a way that can fulfill those things. And Father, just help us believe that we are here on this world and on this earth to, to display your works and that you want to encourage us to this, this action of reciprocity and that truly when you tell us to give, you will never leave us emptier. But truly when you tell us to give, it's always because you know, you have a way of making sure we leave that, that act of giving more full. Father, help us, help us believe you in that. And if we can't today, keep working on us. Drive us to your word. Help us search the scriptures until, um, until we start to think differently. Father, we recognize that you are good. You are good to us in the things that you give to us. You are good to us even in the things that you don't give to us. Because, Father, in all those things, you're working for something greater than, than uh, just simple happiness or an easy life. You're working for our formation and our ultimate wholeness. Father, I thank you for being so wise and so good. We love you in Christ. Amen.